Hello, and welcome to the latest in our series of podcasts, companion to the Primary Care Excellence Work, which has been created for all primary care staff in Greater Manchester. I'm Lynn Marsland. If you've missed any episodes, you can go back and download them anytime from wherever you already get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your colleagues so as many people as possible hear the series. I'm joined again today by Rusty Carroll, who you remember from our original series. Rusty shared some of his first-hand experience as an NHS leader, clinician and PTSD survivor on the importance of healthy well-being in an organisation. In this episode, we'll explore further the role of leader in relation to organisation, team and individual well-being, particularly within the context of today's NHS and healthcare setting. Welcome, Rusty, and thanks for joining us again. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We talked last time about personal and organisational well-being. Why is it that you think that leadership style and approach is important in this? I think for many organisations at the moment, they're experiencing staff dissatisfaction and this is manifesting in in multiple ways very tangibly in terms of poor retention so staff churn however there are members of staff who actually don't have the ability to leave their roles either because they're very specialist or they're tied from a geographical perspective and these individuals who aren't able to vote with their feet as as you would say they would then suffer an ongoing degradation of their well-being And in the ultimate degree, this would then actually start to generate mental ill health, sadly, of the nature and severity that I experienced several years ago. And so I think organisations are starting to recognise this. I think they're struggling to understand what to do. And I think the approach so far has been very much a top-down organisational approach. And I feel that there is an alternative way that's probably better suited to organisations improving the life and the, the health and well-being of their own teams. For those of us who work in healthcare, we've gone into healthcare primarily because we want to help. And there's something actually psychoprotective about that. And it's this concept of meaning making. When you are doing something that you want to do that helps others, you get that positive feeling, that positive feedback and that meaning making process is psychoprotective. You feel better as a result of it. That, of course, is a double-edged sword, and it is entirely possible to relate to your work too much and depend on your and link your own personal identity, your personal well-being too much with your work. And for those of us that work in healthcare, every day is a challenging day and things can happen that will challenge your personal identity, your professional identity, and therefore have an impact on your own well-being. So there's this... I talk about work-life balance being, yes, to do with how many hours you work, but also to do with how you relate to your role. And if your personal identity is so hugely wrapped up in your professional identity, in your professional successes and challenges, then that creates an environment where things that can happen beyond your control at work can have a direct impact on your well-being and therefore mental health. I think the space here in which we're talking and we're discussing and just relating back to that first podcast where we were talking about Maslow's hierarchy and the application of that and the extrapolation of that into the well-being hierarchy, 
where we're talking about now is very much in those middle zones, the sort of esteem and belonging piece, where belonging relates to how you relate to your team and esteem relates to how you relate to yourself. And I think there's a nuance here between correctly deriving value from the meaning making, the positive impact that we have on other people's lives, and we do in healthcare, and then how that means and how that relates to us, and then the environment in which you are doing that. So to go back to what you were asking earlier, the organisations and where we are now, many, many large organisations, and in fact nearly all small ones as well, are trying to find their feet, both in terms of process but also in terms of culture, in what is largely a post-pandemic environment for nearly all of us. Some people are clearly very much still dealing with the pandemic and that work will continue. But very, very few roles have not been impacted by the pandemic. So we're no longer in the pandemic. People are no longer going out at eight o'clock on a Thursday evening and applauding what healthcare and the other essential uh, worker teams are doing. We're no longer lurching from one change in the guideline. It was almost daily, weekly basis. We were changing our scope of practice and it was a very it was terrifying and exciting in the same moment it was exciting to be in an environment where so much learning was happening so quickly it was terrifying to know that what you did the previous week wasn't actually perhaps as beneficial as you hoped it might have been and as we're coming out of the culture now and we're seeing organizations struggling with trying to find a balance between what proportion is remote what proportion should be face to face should there be some mandated proportionality there If we are going to mandate that there's a degree of face-to-face, is that a fixed time in the week or is that, well, as long as we see you twice a week in the office, you're fine? And obviously that's much more applicable to the non-clinical roles and the clinical roles working within health. And organisations are really struggling with this and they're also struggling with the fact that the nature of the work has changed in the same way as it was amazing to be part of the health system that stood up in March 2020 and almost completely changed what we did. We had normal wards converted to ICUs. It was just, you know, absolutely phenomenal. And almost no one didn't change their practice in that time because there was this huge moral imperative to do the right thing. Away from that moral imperative, and now that that moral imperative has subsided, uncertainty has replaced it. And what is the new model? And is the new model what we were doing in 2018? Or is it not? And quite frankly, in nearly all instances, it can't be. We have to move on. Not least because our populations relate to healthcare differently now to how they did even three years ago. So there's an awful lot of uncertainty, an awful lot of change. And leadership in the middle of that bear the responsibility of navigating that uncertainty And of course, a point I've made repeatedly in the past is that everyone's a leader. Just because your job title isn't chief executive doesn't mean you're not a leader. Everyone's a leader, even if you're only leading your own behavior and thereby setting an example and thereby leading to your peers and the people that you interact with on a daily basis. In my organization, we've been running some events to support some of the acute hospitals around the country understand this transition and understand what it means to them and understand how to navigate it. And we're starting to see some very clear themes coming through. And what's really interesting is even in disparate organisations in different localities in different parts of the countries, the themes are universal. And the word reconnection 
is coming through loud and clear. And we're seeing the recorrection coming through in three separate domains. People are wanting to reconnect with themselves because we let go of ourselves and we were all doing extra hours and we we're all doing extra work and the work became dominant and you know, talking about this work-life balance and how you relate to your work. We all lent very much more into our professional work and our professional identity because of that very clear moral imperative from having to deal with this international pandemic. But coming out of that, what's left? Who am I in the midst of that? How do I reconnect with myself in a safe and healthy way that then allows me to progress my life goals and aspirations? There's also the reconnecting with the role. So my role has changed. I mean, my personal role has changed three times in the last three years, and I'm not not unique. But even people who don't have new job titles, don't have new places of work, their roles have changed. And what's expected of them has changed. In many instances, professional standards have been rewritten around certain aspects of professional life. So reconnecting with that role and again, finding the new balance of whatever the new balance is, and it's not the pandemic balance, which was an imbalance because of the moral imperative. It's not the pre-pandemic balance because life doesn't go back, it only goes forwards. So reconnecting with your role and what that means and how you then navigate the uncertainty to connect to the role. And then the third domain depends very much on the individual and it's either reconnecting with their team, team in the broadest sense, but their work colleagues, or reconnecting with their family. And that relates to the difference between the two there we're seeing depends on how someone relates to their role and someone that is very work focused will be wanting to reconnect with their team and someone that's more home life focused will be seeking to reconnect with the family, not least because in the last three years I've seen a lot less of them because we've all been at work more. Or potentially see more of them because we've been working from home. I suppose there's the fine line there. I'm interested in what you said there about working with acute trusts where a lot of people had no option other than to go into work, as you say, because of their clinical role. But if we pull that back and think about primary care, where there was, I suppose, a a mixture of that with a lot of people being able to work from home. Certainly speaking to frontline staff now in PCNs and practices, people are saying they're probably not voicing that reconnection, but that's actually what they're saying underneath. Because let's be honest, society has changed since the pandemic. And in particular, I think patients or the public's expectation of the NHS. And if we look at the pressures that they're currently experiencing in primary care, I guess the question for me is what can leadership in its broader sense, or should we say, what can the more senior leadership, I guess, in primary care do to support that reconnection whilst managing this huge influx of demand in a primary care setting? I think the first step is to acknowledge the existence of the uncertainty and the issue because denying the existence of it will lead to inertia and inactivity and we're seeing an awful lot of inactivity and the negativity that is resulting in terms of staff well-being from lack of activity. So I think the first thing is to acknowledge and I think the acknowledgement needs to be personal. I think you need to acknowledge that you know, 2022 is not 2020 or 2018 or 2000 or any other year you choose. And also 2023 will be different again. I think you need to acknowledge personally that that is the reality. I think 
especially leaders who are in those job title positions that have authority that go along with their leadership roles. So in primary care, the partners at the practice, the PCN leadership, the federation leadership, the senior folk, I think they need to acknowledge that publicly as well. And all of a sudden we're now leaning into the ability and the requirement for leadership to express vulnerability and express that in the same way it's okay to not be okay, something that the princes were leading back when I was actually very, very well with PTSD. And it is okay to not be okay. It's also okay to not quite know what's going on. Because quite frankly, if we were to sit 10 senior leaders in primary care into this room one at a time and ask them the same 10 questions about where they are and where they think primary care in general is going in the next 12, 24 months, I'm fairly certain we would get a very, very broadly diverse set of answers. And there would actually be probably some answers that actually contradicted and conflicted with each other because people's interpretation of the present and the future of course is filtered through their own lenses so i think acknowledging that there is an issue and acknowledging that the issue needs to be fixed it's not a passive thing it's not going to get better on its own it needs an active component and in my opinion most organizations the next acknowledgement is that they probably need some help in undertaking that transition for two reasons. Partly capacity, because they're all already overwhelmed and too busy. And if anyone is unsure about that, try and get a non-clinical slot with a senior leader in primary care and they'll offer you something in two, three, four weeks' time (laughs) as their first next available window or something very, very late into the evening, which is the other habit of primary care. A lot of the management and the leadership works takes places out of hours after clinics in the evenings, which is deleterious for well-being for all the obvious reasons. So acknowledging it exists, acknowledging it needs to be fixed and acknowledging for many that help is needed partly because of capacity, but also I think capability i think an awful lot of our leaders in primary care and it's not just primary care it's across the whole health sector they haven't received a huge degree of training in leadership training in health and well-being and it's been education by modeling so you model your behavior based on the behavior that you've seen others because fundamentally leadership is a behavior and which behaviors trot out is it controlling authoritarian style behaviors and leadership style or is it inclusion is it well-being focused is it you know what skills are you applying are you actively listening are you passively listening are you ignoring all of these skills and behaviors link up together and someone who was previously an executive director of acute trust quite harshly described the nhs as a leadership vacuum and there are days when I disagree vehemently with that statement because I've been exposed to some amazing leaders in healthcare. But there are days where I go, actually, that's sadly very, very true in this instance. In my experience, it's the capacity rather than the capability. Leadership isn't rocket science, but it takes time. And it takes a little bit of investment in terms of development and training but it takes time, it requires investment, you need to schedule the time. So for an example, a manifestation of this 
is what percentage of the NHS workforce are currently out of date for their appraisal. And having asked that question in a few institutions, it's usually over half. And they may only be a month late, but how does that feel to that individual? Because that appraisal is a one-to-one opportunity for them to feel valued by the organisation. And the organisation not doing that on time sends a terrible signal. Doing it on time with someone who is invested in the staff member's development for their benefit, but also for the benefit of the organisation. Because you can't stand still in healthcare. You go out of date in five minutes. So everyone has to be developing. And that development requires support, it requires input. And the output of an appraisal is essentially a learning contract where both parties say, yes, this is what we're going to agree, that you're going to develop and learn in the next reporting period, which is usually 12 months for appraisals, sometimes six. And then the staff member obviously does their bit, but the organisation does their bit as well. And so the value of that one-to-one in the appraisal then echoes all the way through the 12-month period. And that staff member gets that sense of belonging and team and organisational loyalty because they can see the organisation tangibly investing in them. And sometimes it's investment in energy, in emotion, but it might be time. And sometimes it also requires some cash because people need to be put on courses and courses cost money. I think you make a good point about appraisal. I mean, the appraisal process itself, whichever version you are using, can be seen as a bit of a tick box exercise. However, if it's done properly, it's exactly as you say. It's about making that individual feel engaged and valued, having some understanding about where the organisation is going because it's planning for what are we going to be doing in the future. But I guess what I can hear are people saying time, time, I don't have time. And for me, my reply is you don't have time not to. You don't have time not to. Don't make it a big paper-driven thing. Make it a face-to-face, supportive conversation and see what that individual wants from it. Because as you've said, some people will say, oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'll do my mandatory training. I'm fine, thank you. Whereas other people will want to tell you a little bit about how they're struggling or how it could be better. So that investment of leadership time just pays such dividends. And the alternative is what we're seeing, which is negatively spiralling well-being, negatively spiralling, you know, staff satisfaction, increased churn, increased loneliness. And just a point on loneliness here is that it may sound absolutely unbelievable that people that work in large health teams or even in health teams at all feel lonely. But loneliness is absolutely present When you spend time one-to-one with people at various layers of the organisation, and yes, it's lonely at the top, but it's also lonely every way through in the absence of well-being, in the absence of esteem, in the absence of belonging, that loneliness manifests. And in the American military now, they've identified loneliness as one of the risk factors or an expression of loneliness as one of the risk factors for suicide. And of course, in the military, we have a a terrible suicide issue with both serving and veteran members of the community. And it's devastating to me to see some of those same issues manifesting in health teams because if all you do is go and do your shifts and do your work and it becomes a job and you lose your passion, you lose your meaning-making, you lose the belonging, you lose the esteem, you lose the value, you start to spiral. And yes, you can be on a ward that's full of people, but if you feel alone 
in the presence of lots of other people. And here we are in the middle of a major city in the north of England and loneliness is absolutely rife in cities. You can feel alone when working on a busy ward if you don't feel any sense of connection with your especially peer team. And indeed, in a general practice, you might be surrounded by people answering phones, etc., but you can still feel extremely alone. Everyone's busy, and in the absence of those touch points, my wife's a GP, and when she was going through her training, I can remember she rotated through one particular practice where they all down-tooled at, I don't know, half past ten, eleven o'clock in the morning, whenever it was, and everybody went for a coffee, except the one or two people whose turn it was to answer the phones. There were no appointments scheduled, no one was doing any admin, it wasn't meetings, it was coffee, and there was nearly always home-baked cakes and cookies and stuff. And they did it for 10 minutes. 10 minutes. And she reported that that practice, and it was a practice within a wider group of practices, this practice was unique, it was a a legacy habit that they'd had from when they were an independent partner-owned practice before they became part of the the large organisation. And she moved around all the practices, but she really loved the days when she was there. And it was 10 minutes a day. And it was everyone. It was the clinicians and the non-clinicians. It was the senior GPs and the HCAs and the practice nurses all mixing. And inevitably, black swans appeared. So I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of black swans. So in 18th, 19th century, I think it was 18th, 19th, might have been earlier. The concept of a black swan was alien to Europeans. We'd never seen one. And then we went to Australia and they have black swans in Australia. And black swan, prior to the discovery of the fact that they actually exist in Australia, black swans were were labelled as something that was impossible. The term black swan now is very much used to describe the unknown and the hidden. So you're in a room, you're hearing a conversation. We've all done this. And someone says something and it absolutely chimes with you but it's come out of left field and it's the piece of information that changes, that unlocks something. So in clinical practice, it might be something, it might be something a patient says casually about the fact that they, oh, and I've just noticed I've lost some weight in the last few weeks. Oh, tell me more about that. How have you noticed? Oh, my trousers are a bit loose. Oh, okay. Two week wait. <laughs> let's let's we need to discover whether or not there's a two-week wait sitting there and sometimes these black swans come in those unexpected moments and if all we're doing is the formal elements of our job and if there's no informality if there's no space for additional comments for creativity without that space which requires time and sometimes a nice quiet space as well but at least time if there's no space then all of those unknown unknowns remain hidden and they are icebergs and we're bouncing from iceberg to iceberg at the moment. The black swan analogy, Rusty, has really got my imagination going and it's kind of uh, appealed to me greatly and I love I love learning things which I just have done there obviously. I was going to ask, I'd bring this to a close, unfortunately we have to, but if there was one thing that you could say to leaders within primary care as a way of kind of supporting that re-enablement, reconnection with their teams and individuals, what would it be? I think there's one thing that we can all do and it doesn't require investment and it doesn't require training and it's not rocket science. We just need to create the space in our schedules to 
invest the time in our teams. And if we just do a small amount of that, the benefits far outweigh the cost of the time not spent doing the formal elements of whatever the job is. And look out for the black swans. Keep an eye out for the black swans. They'll save your life. Thanks, Rusty. That has been a a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for that. You're very welcome. This has been a really interesting subject to cover today uh, and an invaluable addition to our ever-increasing podcast series. If you've missed any of them, do go back and download them for free. And we'd really love it if you can share them with your friends and colleagues. We want as many people as possible to hear the useful advice from amazing guests such as we've had today. Don't forget there's a wealth of information and advice on the Primary Care Excellence page too. And in particular, Charlotte will be linking the information on all of these roles so you can go to a single point of contact to get everything that you need. You can also connect via our social media channels. And if you're involved in a project you want others to know about, the more we work together, the happier and healthier our workforce will be. This has been a Fresh Air production. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.